Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will offer you a look into what market and macro conditions might have in store over the near to medium term and why you should consider alternative approaches to investing in order to mitigate or reduce the portfolio impacts of turbulent periods in the markets. Uh, Joining me for the conversation today, glad to welcome Dan Scansaroli, Head of Portfolio Strategy and UBS Wealthway Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as glad to welcome back to the forum Dan Villalon, Global Co-Head of the Portfolio Solutions Group at AQR Capital Management. Dan is also the founder and host of AQR's podcast, The Curious Investor. So Dan and Dan, it's great to be with you both. Uh, Three Dans on one podcast, so we'll do our best to navigate through this as best as possible, though looking forward to hearing your insights, and thank you very much for spending time with our listeners and their clients today. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to be here. We're, we're in good company, name-wise. <laughs> Absolutely. You got to love it. So maybe to set the stage, a good starting point might be to get your thoughts on market conditions before we get into positioning a bit. And Dan V, much going on at the moment. You think about inflation, supply chain concerns, monitoring, of course, fiscal and monetary policy developments, which carry implications to the markets. Looking out over, let's say, the next six to eight months, Dan, what's your market and macro outlook? Okay, well, you know, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna start maybe with an observation, and uh, you know, when when people are asked uh, about outlooks, I have literally never heard anybody ever say, you know, over the next six months we're we're feeling pretty complacent. Um, now that said, <laughs> today uh, we are especially not complacent. Um, like 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 you alluded to, you know, inflation risk is is certainly one thing that folks seem to agree on. Uh, now there is some debate on, on whether or not it's transitory or not. And, you know, uh, could there be sort of knock-on effects? You know, what, what does that mean central banks? What does that mean for growth? Um, but to me, you know, the thing that keeps me up at night is I don't think people remember what risk actually feels like. Um, and, and what I mean by this is is the risk, the next risk uh, might not just come because of markets, it might also come because of investor behavior, you know, from investors who don't realize or have just forgotten that returns aren't normally as good as they've been lately. Uh, you know, actually, just earlier today, I, I happened to be looking at the returns to the Ruffalo 1000, so just you know, the thousand largest stocks in the U.S. Um, this, is, this is sort of a neat factoid, I- including this year, year to date, four of the past five calendar years. Equity returns have been over 20%. And that, like, this is including the COVID drawdown in, in March 2020. When it comes to sort of outlook, you know, the, the fear that's sort of driving uh, my thinking is I think investors have gotten used to or, or even expect markets to be this kind of high reward and low risk from here. Uh, risk in investing happens even if we haven't seen much of it in the past several years. And when it comes to kind of what I'm thinking about, it's how are people going to deal with reality when it returns? Thank you, Dan. So uh, Dan Scansaroli, from the perspective of the Chief Investment Office here at UBS, uh, what's our current thinking with respect to the trajectory of the economic environment, market conditions, uh, looking out over the next six to eight months? Yeah, well, first to start off, I absolutely agree with what Dan V said around uh, investors 
unfortunately, we've been spoiled in terms of the returns that we've, we've even experienced over the last decade. And as we look ahead, we're seeing a, a lot of headwinds in terms of valuations as well as a rising rate environment that, that really you know, get to the core of we need to be more thoughtful around how we do portfolio construction because equity returns are not likely to be nearly at the level that we've seen in the last 10 years. And fixed income is is likely to have these headwinds from rising rates. As it relates to, to UBS and, and similar to what uh, what Dan had talked about, you know, currently investors are very worried about the potential for a stagflationary environment. And that is, you know, to be clear, that's one where the economy experiences high inflation and lower negative growth. And at UBS, it's our view that t- today's supply chain and energy challenges are actually the result of extraordinary but temporary demand for goods relative to services. And I bring that up because as the economy reopens and the consumer demand shifts from goods to services, we expect inventories, which are at the crux of the problem that we're seeing with inflation, inventories being at lows, we expect those inventories to restock and the labor supply challenge to ease over time. So in that regard, our base case scenario is one where inflation is transitory, uh, where inflation gradually falls back towards 2% by mid-2022, and where we see growth decelerate but remain above trend. And I bring that up because as we're, as we're looking at uh, the trends that actually are happening, we're seeing that the current vaccines are offering sufficient protection against disease to prevent governments from further lockdowns, while vaccine efforts are improving globally, which is a positive catalyst for growth. Uh, both of these trends should lead to a reflationary environment in the year ahead. Um, you know, Dan also mentioned the Federal Reserve, and you know, we've we've really seen the Federal Reserve continue to be extremely accommodative. But while we see um, these economic improvements continue, you know, we're already seeing a slightly more hawkish Federal Reserve, which is balancing the, its communication and timing on tapering of asset purchases, which will lead to an eventual rise in rates. Some rise in which we've already seen so far. Um, with rates still, still near those all-time lows, though, uh, and poised to rise, um, investors really need to look beyond cash and government bonds to manage risks and focus on portfolio diversification. Uh, to insulate against those rising rates and economic reflation, um, we are most preferred on U.S. mid-cap equities and value stocks in the U.S., um, in addition to Japanese equities, where the recovery has lagged. Um, we also, in the fixed income space, we prefer f- senior loans, which are floating rate in nature and pro- therefore provide protection against rising rate scenarios over investing in a more traditional government investment grade bond, uh, excuse me, uh, which has historically tight spreads and could face losses during a rising rate environment. Maybe we can run with portfolio construction for a few moments. So at this point, we've heard your outlooks and within those outlooks, it does sound like there could be triggers that could result in a turbulent periods within the marketplace. And investors, of course, want to know how can they proactively protect against any downside risk. So Dan V, when it comes comes to alternative approaches investors should consider in order to, let's say, protect against bad outcomes. What's your thinking there? Maybe what I can do, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about uh, two uh, 
different types of strategies that, that I've uh, myself has spent a long time researching, but, but I think are fairly well known as well across the investor community. I know UBS is well aware of these. Um, the first is uh, what's broadly called defensive investing. And then the second is called uh, hedge funds. And I'll have to explain why, why kind of both of these um, have some characteristics that uh, investors are likely to find pretty valuable, uh, given, like what you said, these sort of uh, turbulent periods, uh, sudden shocks that, that um, might, might hit markets, um, certainly uh, over the foreseeable future. Um, so I'll start with defensive. So defensive investing, this is, this is one that um, I've been writing about for, for about 10 years now as, as an uh, effective way, a good way of, of mitigating downside risk. And the, the general gist here, the, the big idea is that lower risk securities, so think of like a lower risk uh, company. So you could think of like um, low volatility or, or high profitability, high margins. Um, the gist is that these firms, these companies, they tend to do better than standard economic theories would suggest. Um, and, and so what that means is these sort of defense stocks, they actually end up um, having sort of lower risk, almost by definition, right? You're picking these lower risk stocks, but they end up sort of keeping up with equity markets uh, over the long term. They kind of keep up with the average, even though they take less risk than average. Um, now, one of the reasons I get kind of so excited about uh, defensive investing is it's not something that, you know, has just been working over the past couple years. This is something that has decades of evidence and, uh, and you can test and you find in tons of different places, not just um, in U.S. equities, but uh, largely most places, most markets, most asset classes you look at, uh, you can find uh, sort of the efficacy of a defensive approach um, to help mitigate uh, some of these uh, turbulent times um, that, that your uh, portfolios might, might be exposed to. Um, maybe one more thing on, on defensive, um, why, why I think it's sort of uh, uh, an exciting alternative for folks to think about is that defensive tends to be something that's, call it, missing uh, from many other portfolios. Um, you know, a lot of portfolios might have, a, a, say, a value bias, um, you know, bless their souls these days for those brave investors who, who do. Um, other uh, investors might have a, a growth bias. You know, one of the nice features with defensing or defensive is that it tends to be different than those two. It, it tends to be a nice complement to existing tilts or, or kind of uh, alpha signals um, that investors have today. Uh, so that's defensive. The, the, the second one is, is hedge funds. And, and there's sort of two ways that hedge funds can be thought of as, uh, as a defensive orientation or kind of a risk mitigator. Uh, I mean, the first is just in the name, you know, hedge. Uh, these things are typically not uh, completely exposed only to equity markets going up. They they have some they have some shorts. They have some hedging going on. So they tend not to have as much exposure to or kind of sensitivity or risk stemming from uh, equities as as many portfolios do. Um, the, the second way that they can be thought of as sort of a risk mitigator. Is, is from the sources of returns that they're kind of set up or they're designed to capture. You know, if these other returns are uncorrelated to markets, um, then great. It, it means these returns, should they should not be impaired if markets do poorly. They, they should behave just as well as they, they have on average. Um, and you could even do one step better uh, if some of these sources of returns um, might even benefit 
in tough times. You can think of um, like a quality type of theme, kind of flight to quality uh, oriented uh, hedge fund returns. Um, they might do even better, uh, particularly in those times where you need them the most. And Dan, to that point, in a few moments, I do want to break out the transparency a bit. I know we're going to hit on return profiles for some of these approaches, as well as the risks that participants uh, should consider. But Dan asks, I'm curious from the perspective of the UBS chief investment office, what might be some alternative approaches investors, our clients should consider in order to protect against bad outcomes? Well, you know, it, it's it's very natural um, that historically when We've thought about protecting a portfolio. We think we think about a healthy allocation to anti-cyclical assets, and and when I say that, what I what I'm really referring to is an allocation to bonds. You know, bonds bonds really have have shown to be a, a core way to insulate it against potential downturns in the market. They tend to appreciate when there is that flight to quality that Dan V was talking about. However. In this environment, that's not what we recommend, right? We, while bonds are still an essential part of any diversified asset allocation in a portfolio to mitigate downside risk, low yields don't offer nearly as much protection as they did um, in the past by investing in those bonds. Um, you know, uh, most likely market turbulence will come from either a growth or an inflation scare or uncertainty, which really drives those equity pro-cyclical assets downward. And this means that we have to look to other diversifying strategies like what Dan was talking about that can insula- insulate or counter, you know, the, the flight to quality. Um, the fight against those pro-cyclical assets in your portfolio. You know, the, the most traditional alternative uh, and, and, and very direct way to counter bad outcomes is, is to hold a hedging strategy, a direct hedging strategy, buying a put option or a structured product, um, against equities to constrain the downside. However, when buying insurance on your portfolio, it can be a very expensive proposition, especially because we don't really know when the next major market correction is going to occur. And so you know, you're going to be constantly paying that, that, that premium out of your portfolio for that insurance and, that, and it degrades returns. So as we look to dampen downside risks, um, you know, I wanted to elaborate a little more on why here at the UBS, uh, we favor a, a diversified set of hedge fund strategies across various styles and strategies. Um, many hedge fund managers really do focus on as Dan talked about, providing unique long shorts or derivative or relative value strategies, which have historically had those low correlations to traditional investments like stocks and bonds, and therefore can offer a degree of protection during those market declines. For instance, um, relative value and long short managers look to dynamically allocate to similar investment vehicles which have seen a divergence in their fundamentals, making one more attractive relative to the other. The long-short structure removes a large portion of the equity market drivers and therefore can cushion a portfolio from experiencing the full impact of a market correction. Um, as policies and in inflation potentially impact countries differently, um, as we come out of COVID, we are also constructive on macro-style strategies, with, which look for opportunistic emerging trends and divergences across equities, bonds, and currencies, and commodities in different countries. Um, the use of dynamic options, futures, and shorting strategies by these hedge fund managers has historically resulted in return generation that is often positive during times of heightened volatility and significantly less 
loss during times of major market drawdowns. To that point, then, maybe now is a good time to expand a bit on the return profiles for uh, the approaches that our listeners have just heard about. And for our clients in particular, if you do have any follow-up questions, of course, we do encourage that you contact your UBS financial advisor. Though, Dan V., getting back to what you had shared with us a few moments ago, can you speak a bit to the return profiles? Yeah, and, you know, this this is such a a good question. Investing, we all know is hard. Not having a good sense of return profiles makes investing much harder than it needs to be. Um, so getting a, a handle on, on when and, and under what circumstances a, a strategy is probably not going to look very great, uh, to me, it's one of the most valuable exercises out there. And it's, and it's one of the things that kind of, I think, uh, is a great predictor of uh, an investor's ability to actually hold something uh, for, for the long term uh, over their horizon. So m- maybe I'll start with uh, defensive investing. Um, uh, this is probably not too surprising. Uh, in terms of return profile, it generally outperforms equities uh, during equity market stress or during equity market drawdowns. Uh, so that's when it looks good. Um, defensive stocks generally uh, even tend to hold up decently well uh, in call it normal equity markets, sometimes outperforming, sometimes underperforming. But but on average, we find that defensive strategies they they tend to keep up fine even in these sort of normal environments. Um, where defensive tends to underperform then uh, is in very strong market environments. Like you know I, I talked about just the stratospheric returns of of uh, U.S. equities over the past. A few years, you know, if if I were to tell you, hey, that over the next 12 months, equity returns are going to be over 20 percent, yeah, I wouldn't expect defensive to look great in comparison. Um, you know, I think another reason that kind of uh, thinking about these return profiles can be so valuable is it can also help you not just set expectations, but also kind of make the case for why you're doing something different, why why you're sort of addressing uh, a risk in the portfolio. Um, if you think that equity markets are going to go up 20% next year, uh, you know, defensive is probably not going to make a lot of sense, you know, in terms of how you think about your portfolio. Um, but if, on the other hand, if you think market returns are going to be pretty unremarkable or, or typical or, or even lower than average uh, over the next 12 months, well, then there's a pretty clear case to be made for why a strategy like defensive makes sense. Okay, so that's for that's for uh, defensive investing. Um, for hedge funds, okay, well, hedge funds tend to be a really broad uh, asset class. They're they're incredibly hard to benchmark, and it's it's hard to describe them with anything but you know the broadest of brushstrokes. Uh, but I can tell you this: um, hedge funds tend to underperform equities in 60/40 when equities 60/40 are doing great, and hedge funds tend to outperform. 60, 40 in equities when 60, 40 in equities are not doing great. Now, I, I realize this might sound completely obvious to uh, UBS advisors and clients, but it's surprisingly uh, um, a source of, uh, of disagreement or, uh, or confusion or disappointment when those times come. Um, and maybe just like an analogy um, um, for the intuition here is – Imagine that uh, you have a friend that you play tennis with, and, and you and your friend are both equally gifted, talented tennis players. You're evenly matched. Um, 
But when your friend is having a good day or maybe even a lucky day, you're probably going to lose that match that day. Uh, and when your friend is having a bad day, you're probably going to win. That's kind of how uh, diversifiers in general and, and hedge funds in particular are going to look versus things that you're used to, like, like equity market returns or, or 60-40 returns. And, and I think when it comes to strategies like these, when it comes to hedge fund strategies or anything alternative, being able to communicate you know, up front um, this sort of this proposition, the return profile, is, is a big part of being able to stick with it um, so that you actually hold it. Uh, in those times where you get the maximal payoff from them. The uh, tennis analogy is very helpful. As a tennis player, I've been on both sides of that outcome, Dan. So thank you very much for breaking that out a bit. Anything, uh, Dan, asked that you'd like to expand a bit when it comes to return profiles? Absolutely. Um, as we, I really love the analogy because because it is, even I think even for at times UBS clients, as, as you we need to remind you know our our hedge fund investors that, you know, hedge funds are not going to keep up when markets rip. They're going to help you on the downside. And when you have more, you know, sanguine or, or sideways or even marginally up, uh, markets or portfolios, they do tend to, to offer a benefit where they, where they have the potential to outperform. Um, you know, as you said, generally each hedge fund style, um, tends to offer, uh, you know, a, a wide variety of different investment techniques. So, you know, we're painting with very broad, broad brushes here. But what I really want to focus on is, is at UBS, when we look at a hedge fund, we think about, um, when we think about the return profile, we think about the asymmetry of that return profile. Um, and what I mean by that is, is, um, I'm referring to the tendency to capture more equity market upside moves than equity market downside moves due for due to the hedge fund managers unique strategies and dynamic risk management techniques to mitigate capital losses and capture differentiated alpha opportunities. Uh, when we look at the different styles, um, for instance, long short equity managers, they tend to offer the highest risk and returns in the hedge fund space. Um, but the potential losses are dictated really by how much leverage an individual manager ultimately uses for their strategy. Um, you know, and, and an example there would be a diversified basket of uh, long short equity managers as measured by um, the hedge fund research index um, has historically captured about 70% of the equity market up moves, but only about 40% of the equity down moves. And that really puts things in the context of how you should expect to perform when markets really are moving strongly upward or when they're moving downward. And this, this has traditionally, uh, if we look historically, has translated into about an annualized return of eight and a half percent over the last 25 years for long, you know, a, a diversified basket of long short equity managers. Um, though this is not without those potential drawdowns when there's a major market correction. I want to be very clear about that. For instance, during the global financial crisis, holding these hedge funds would have they would have outperformed equities, which fell about 54 percent. However, they still drew down about 31 percent during during that time. So they they do help mitigate risk on the long short equity side. Um, 
but the, you know, when there's a major market correction, the tendency is that there is some capture of that, um, which, which they tend to turn around when the, when the market actually recovers. Relative value managers, on the other hand, I mentioned them before, they tend to offer more attractive trade-off between risk and return, um, with re- return asymmetries, um, that are very strong as they look for those arbitrage opportunities that arise from mispricings, particularly in the income space. Uh, and historically, they've captured around 50% of the up moves in the market and fairly limited downside during short-lived market uh, drawdowns. Uh, the strategy has had less risk than most other strategies with around a 5% volatility. And you know, unlike that 30% drawdown that we saw with the long-short equity strategies um, during that 54% equity market down move during the global financial crisis, you know, the average relative value manager only drew down about 18%. Lastly, the most idiosyncratic uh, strategy tends to be macro strategies in the hedge fund space. Um, a well-diversified portfolio of macro strategies tends to have relatively limited downside and correlation to those, to those market corrections, and depending on the strategy, can offer more steady returns than other strategies as they focus on capturing trends and dynamically adjusting with a more liquid set of investment vehicles and holdings. This conversation is largely about risk mitigation, though, as with any form of investing or approach, there does come risk, and here is no different. And I know we've alluded to risk a bit already, but to be a bit more pointed, what are some risks, Dan V, that participants in this space should be mindful of? You know, this is going to be kind of a, I'll call it a big picture risk. Um, and, And that is, I think one of the biggest risks is dropping the thing right before you actually end up needing it. Um, you know, a, a lot of people say market timing is, is hard. Uh, market timing is actually really easy to do. It's just really hard to do it well. And it's really, really hard to do it well consistently. And I think that's one of the reasons we've all come to accept uh, asset allocation and strategic asset allocation and model portfolios as being so helpful. that They kind of, in a sense, they tie our hands to the mask when it comes to um, uh, risk. Now, I think we need to uh, view our risk mitigators, our alternatives, our diversifiers, I think we need to view them in the same way. You know, to, to some extent, the, the reason you've got some of these in a portfolio is you, you have some ballast, you have something that's supposed to help when, when you need it most. Um, I think that the challenge, the risk is, if those times you're worried about, if they haven't happened recently, you might wonder, you know, what's the point of even having these things in the portfolio? Um, you know, I, I, uh, we, were, we were talking not long ago today. It's kind of a, a cold day out here, out east. And, uh, you know, we don't get rid of our snow shovels in January just because we had an unusually warm December. We should think of risk reducers, the role, in the, sort of the same way. You know, just because markets might go for a while with um, doing great or, or not really exposing us in terms of much risk, it doesn't mean that future risks have gone down. And so to me, this is one of the, one of the toughest things when it comes to um, these strategies is um, making sure that you're able to keep them in the portfolio um, during good times, during these times where they might not seem to be adding much value uh, because you need something for the times 
when when uh, the portfolio is, is struggling. Dan, very important considerations, and that does remind me I need to think about where my snow shovel is and get that ready for the months ahead. But Dan, this is an important point to keep running with, so I'm curious from UBS's vantage point, what are the risks here that our clients really need to be mindful of? I'll talk about the more traditional risks, which with, you know, relative to, to the excellent points that, that Dan V had made there. Um, you know, when, when we invest in hedge funds, there's basically three risks that, that I think clients should really focus on. The first is manager specific risks in terms of selecting those managers and their processes. The second is illiquidity risk, the ability for you to get your capital back, um, on demand. And the third, the third is, uh, risks around leverage. Um, as it relates to manager-specific risks, it's, it, it really is essential, especially because of the breadth of different styles in the hedge fund industry, to have a deep due diligence process to understand the portfolio manager and the operational risks of any particular fund. The types of strategies and the skill of the manager coupled with their executional structure, it really does vary quite widely from one fund to another, even if they're playing in the same types of strategies they can have very different processes and, and results when targeting potential opportunities based on their structure and their skill and, their, and, and the way in which they, they ultimately operate. As it relates to liquidity risks, it, um, one of the primary risks when investing in hedge funds is actually understanding your, your liquidity schedule and how liquid the investments are that, that the fund manager is investing in. Um, this is particularly true for non-equity focused strategies. Um, unfavorable market conditions can widen the bid-ask spreads that that those strategies ultimately have on those products, which can have a negative effect on valuations or the ability to exit the strategy in a short period of time without taking uh, um, a loss. Um, most hedge fund managers actually play this less liquid strategies to their advantage to try to use that illiquidity premium to create longer term value, but they will also require then longer lockups on capital so those opportunities can come to fruition and they're not forced sellers the way, let's say, a, a, a liquid manager who gets a redemption for capital would have to be. I, I, I mentioned before that these strategies tend to also use leverage to enhance returns. Uh, this means that any strategy uh, that's from higher returns when they're using higher levels of leverage um, when, when you know, the strategy is doing well, but also the exacerbated downside um, with the potential um, losses that come with enhanced losses from that leverage that also comes with the risk of potential capital calls because they are borrowing those assets away from a bank or, 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 or another firm. Um, and if they get those capital calls, it can lock in losses if they don't manage their risk properly. So evaluating the manager, their risk process, their, their structures, their organizational structures, understanding the liquidity of these, of their capital, um, and how they mitigate risk are all essential in terms of being able to Pick a good fund manager, incorporate them into your portfolio, and understand how 
they are going to perform and deliver on that alpha opportunity. Clearly no shortage of risks to be mindful of, and I know I've mentioned this before, but in this context of risk, especially for our clients listening in, it's important that you do have a conversation or maybe even it's a series of conversations with your financial advisor. So maybe just to take a step back and acknowledge some of the terminology that's been used. We've heard about leverage, shorting can sound a bit scary, maybe even complicated to investors. So Dan V, how should investors think about the trade-off for using leverage? Long only versus hedge funds. Yeah, no, it's that, 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 that's another good question. You know, I think when it comes to um, terms like like leverage and shorting, I think the, the the first thing I'll say is that often these terms, leverage and shorting, often they are thought of as call it binary. So you know, a lot of people sort of group a portfolio with a little leverage alongside portfolios with a lot of leverage, and they think, oh, that's that's those are levered portfolios and a portfolio with a little bit of shorting kind of gets grouped with portfolios that might have a lot of shorting. Um, now, um, since leverage and shorting are risky, what, what this does is it kind of paints this picture that any strategy, no matter how much of it it uses, um, is sort of inherently quite risky. Um, and I think this line of thinking, I think it does investors a, a pretty big disservice because it ends up really narrowing their options for, for dealing with the, the current environment. Um, I, I'm going to use one last uh, analogy here. Uh, I find them helpful when it comes to sort of abstract concepts like uh, leverage and, and shorting. Um, think, think of the, the risks of, of leverage and shorting. Uh, let, let's say we're cooking. Uh, let's, let's think of it as salt. You know, it's, a, it's a bad idea to put a pound of salt into a dish. Uh, that would be... Uh, really bad from a health perspective, you know, not to mention whatever, whatever you're making, it tastes really awful. Um, but just because eating a pound of salt for dinner is bad, it doesn't mean a small amount is also bad. So when it comes to investing, yeah, you know, leverage and shorting are additional risks that we should be careful of. And that's definitely right. But we shouldn't forget uh, the issue of the magnitudes. How much are we talking about? Uh, when it comes to leverage and shorting, you know, we think uh, a little can go a long way. Um, okay, so that's kind of the first thing is, is is to remember that these things are in degrees as opposed to uh, kind of risk or not risk. Um, so then the next thing is, okay, well, why take this additional risk at all? You know, if, if leverage and shorting represent some risk, you know, why do it? Um, well, Leverage and shorting are, in many cases, uh, we find the most efficient way to capture returns without kind of doubling down on risks that are already present and already dominating uh, most client portfolios, most investor portfolios. Um, shorting, for instance, uh, is an extremely helpful way. It's a very direct way of um, reducing uh, the risk from uh, equity markets particularly. This tends to be the number one driver, not just of returns, but also risk uh, in, in client portfolios. And so strategies that are able to have some uh, shorts in order to mitigate that risk and really kind of emphasize the other sources of returns uh, can be at an advantage when it comes to kind of harvesting all of the investment opportunities out there. Um, uh, leverage, uh, believe it or not, leverage can be used to improve diversification. I think very often people think of leverage as sort of the way just to you know, take some narrow sliver of something and expand it and suddenly it's dominating a portfolio. Um, leverage can be used in another way. Um, 
And that is by letting things, letting sources of returns, letting risk premia, letting opportunities that are usually too small to matter in a portfolio actually contribute, actually kind of make them um, kind of uh, um, uh, contribute, say, to the diversification, to, to the kind of well-roundedness of a portfolio better than you could achieve if you didn't have that tool in your arsenal. Dan, anything here you'd like to add from the vantage point of UBS? Yeah, I'd like to, uh, you know, I, I, I'd like to actually build on those, those exact comments because that's exactly at UBS how we view leverage and shorting as well. Generally speaking, I think the most important part of this concept is that when hedge funds short a position, it is not typically done in isolation. Hedge fund managers tend to use shorts against similar long positions to capture mispricings or trends that cannot easily be realized by a long-only manager. Um, and for many of the relative value or long-short strategies, the short position, as Dan alluded to, it offsets the market risk and exposures that investors already have in other portions of their portfolio. And given the reduced risk potential of those long short positions, because you've stripped out that market risk, it is an effective hedge because of that shorting. And therefore, borrowing to leverage the position allows you to raise the risk to a, to a more reasonable level um, that can provide more meaningful returns relative to those traditional assets. Um, additionally, when hedge funds borrow, you know, as Dan mentioned as well, it allows for the manager to create a more diversified set of strategies they could potentially, that could potentially generate returns and manage um, risks that any single trade drives an unfavorable result. You're not, you're not just amplifying the one strategy, but the hedge fund you know, manager is typically taking that capital and distributing it across other paired trades so that, so that if they're wrong on any one trade, they, they still have other trades that can insulate that and potentially make up or outperform given, given when those different, uh, those different opportunities are going to come to fruition. I know at this point we're beginning to come to the end of our time together today. We've covered a lot of ground for our listeners, our clients, though I would be curious to maybe hear some final thoughts or takeaways. So, Dan S., we will provide our guest, Dan V., with the final word. So I'll pass it to you, Dan, for any final thoughts you'd like to share with us today. Yeah, I mean, everything we've discussed today was around how to to really position your portfolio um, for the future, not relative to the past, which we've seen with where for the last 40 years, we've seen really a tailwind to the bond market. And in the, in the past 10 years, we've seen equity markets really, really outperform um, to a level which we don't expect in the future. Um, in the current market environments, where those bonds are likely to face headwinds from rising rates and those high equity valuations which investors are facing today, incorporating alternative investments like hedge funds into your portfolio can provide a very significant diversification benefit that can help dampen risks, um, smooth returns, and give access to unique strategies that mitigate potential losses in a portfolio. So as investors adjust their portfolios for a post-COVID world, we view hedge funds as a complementary allocation to a portfolio that actually still has a healthy allocation to stocks and bonds. It is not a replacement for either one of them. Um, macro style and relative value strategies, we believe that they have the potential to help mitigate any inflationary risks. Um, 
um, you know, relative to more traditional investments. While long short equity managers, they can help diversify away um, from those stressed equity valuations that we see because they're able to actually target paired trades in terms of where the valuations have really disconnected in the marketplace. Thank you, Dan. Dan V, any final thoughts or takeaways you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah, and then these are are going to be uh, so similar uh, to uh, what what UBS Dan uh, said, which it it just gets to the heart of both the need and the challenge of diversification today. Um, it, it's a really hard case to make when traditional assets, when traditional markets have done so well. Um, but like Dan said, in, investing based on the past that is rarely the way to outperform in the future. Um, the future, future returns or, or expected returns, um, AQR believes, UBS agrees, are lower than average. Um, now, the, the same can't be said for risks. I think there's going to be a bigger role for diversifiers from here and, and certainly more than we've seen uh, at any point in the past decade. Well, Dan Scanceroli, Dan Villalon, very productive conversation today. Uh, You both covered a lot of timely and helpful ground for our listeners, our clients. A lot here that we can certainly follow up on, so perhaps we can look forward to revisiting our conversation in the new year. Though, thank you both again for your time and insight today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Great talking with you. The UBS Market Moves podcast channel is available where podcasts are found, including on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. Time frames may vary. Strategies are subject to individual client goals, objectives, and suitability. This approach is not a promise or guarantee that wealth or any financial results can or will be achieved. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.